Good morning. Good morning. What a day of worship. God gives us uh, quite the privilege to come together. Rejoice in it, right? Take it in. It's about Him. We've been in Matthew, and uh, we continue in Matthew as we uh, are nearing the end of it. And you know, we're approaching Resurrection Day. We're getting very much closer than we were before, and uh, we're concentrating on His death. And uh, the way that this looks, it looks like it's going to come out just about right as we see His resurrection as it uh, happens on that particular day that we celebrate. There were a lot of supernatural events that uh, were happening at around the at the cross and around there, uh, even across the universe. We noted uh, last week there was darkness all over uh, the land, all over the world for that matter. And this should have gotten everybody's attention. I mean, everybody that was there at the cross at least should have known what was happening, right? Did they get it? No. (laughs) They should have known. But it's like today, I think most people don't heed to God's warnings. And He's given us warnings constantly just through everyday life. Uh, When you think of springtime, you think of life coming back. You know, you start to see green grass, green trees, and allergies. (laughs) How are you guys doing today? I'm all swollen up in the face. I'm glad I'm not on some kind of... uh, TV monitor here today. I'd be in real trouble. But, um, stand back as far as I can. Uh, I feel like my face is about 10 pounds heavier. But um, this is a dark period because you have mankind showing himself, man is showing that he is at his worst when he crucifies the Lord. And it literally happened. People actually did that. We know our sins did that, but also physically they crucified our Savior. And at the same time that this is happening, God is manifesting His great glory. And I think that's an incredible thing to think of. Here is this awful sin that is being judged, great judgment, and at the same time, you see the glory of God, His grace and His mercy. And that's where we ended up last week with Jesus dying on the cross where he um, said his last words and uh, he says, it is finished. And then he committed his spirit to the Father. And now we observe even more spectacular supernatural occurrences at the cross. There's more of them to come. This isn't it. We get more. And we see this starting in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, The earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, This was the Son of God. Some miracles happening here. Supernatural events. Now the curtain from top to bottom is fantastic in that, how could that happen from top to bottom? God did it. And that's to indicate He's the one that is tearing this open. Because the, the veil, the curtain there in that most holy place is blocking the way for sinners to get into. They can't get into that throne room of God. And so as we go back to Exodus, the picture was drawn up in the law. In Exodus 26, verse 33, as he's giving them instructions on how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, and the tabernacle is a place of worship. Matter of fact, Exodus is a book of worship. The book of Leviticus is one of the best worship books in all of the Bible. And you think, Leviticus? 
How many times have you started to read Leviticus and started to get bogged down and then you went to back to the New Testament somewhere? It's a, it's a difficult book, but really it's simple because it's about worship. That's why the tabernacle was built and instructions were given. And um, as he says in verse 33, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp, then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. There was a division made. And people didn't have the exact same kind of evidence or uh, access to God that we have today. Could they communicate with God? Well, of course, because they prayed. But there was something more that happened when the new covenant happened and the Holy Spirit came on. We were able to worship in a way that people hadn't before. And that's the way it will continue to be as, as we appear into God's Word. We should continue to, um, I think, reform our, our personal worship with God. Uh, we shouldn't be just satisfied with where we're at. We should continue to grow in, in the grace that uh, He's given us. And we should ever be reaching upwards. So the veil, the veil is a, a division. It's a divider. The holy place of the temple... And the inner sanctuary. Now, there is, you know, in the tabernacle that was built, I'm sure you all are probably very familiar with it, but just to go over, just in case somebody's wondering what's going on here, you have the tabernacle, you have an entrance into it, you have a brazen altar, and then you have uh, an, another um, place where the, the priests would wash their hands and their feet. Then they would go and minister daily in the temple part. That was the indoors part. And in there you start seeing more of the evidence of the Messiah. All of this is a picture of Christ. And, of course, you have the, the, the showbread. And you have the altar of incense. And then the uh, other altar that's just before the veil that would represent uh, the prayers of the people. And that's what the priest would do daily. They would continue to bring in that bread. They would continue to keep that light going. They'd continue to have those prayers going up Constantly before the Lord, and um, of course that represented, uh, of course, what the sacrifice was doing. Uh, this is uh, a great picture of how God wanted to be with His people. And we know about the once a year thing, the Day of Atonement. That's where the priest could actually go into where the presence of God was. That represented the presence of God. Of course, we know that God is not confined by a uh, temple made with hands, but that re that represented that place. And, of course, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was there, and, of course, the law was there. Um, I think what we have here is we have sacrifice that's ever before people's eyes. The animals were sacrificed, and, and of course, the Day of Atonement, it says, okay, now the sins of the nation are being sacrificed for. The priest would do that, then he would do it for himself, bring the blood and, and put it on that altar to take away the sin of the people. And then we know about the two goats, and one of them would actually leave and depart the city and go outside the city. And that's representing expiation. The sins have been taken away. What a picture Christ uh, is um, really given here. It's, it's illustrating who he is. That's what he did, uh, what he was ultimately going to do as far as they were concerned. But there's an enormous gulf between the most holy God and the people. And that's what that curtain is there for. Nobody gets in here except that priest. And that's a special time when he gets in. So the access, in a sense here, is really limited, isn't it? Limited access. You had to have somebody go in there for you and do that. It's always dealing with atonement, isn't it? The doing it for you. Substitution. That's, that's the, uh, the word for uh, this season, isn't it? When you think of the substitutionary atonement. But the God of the universe looks down upon that tabernacle, looks down all the way unto that very most holy place, and then where would be what was considered the law, or that was the law, the, the scrolls there. And it showed that the people fell far short, and there had to be punishment for the sin. Just, just the gospel was presented in, in the Old Testament. So when the blood is sprinkled there, then it's saying there has been atonement made. Sins are forgiven. What an illustration. God's grace, God's mercy. 
they had it going every day. And then they would have the, the feast, the Passover, for instance, and then the, the atonement, the Day of Atonement. And that's always reminding them of God's great grace and mercy and how their sin has to be dealt with. And that was an ongoing thing every day. So Christ here is being illustrated. There's a picture of him. And he is the one who really is the temple. He is the temple. And what's dwelling in the temple? Or who is dwelling in the temple? The Godhead. In his body, as he is existing on earth, like us, in flesh and bone, at the same time, the Godhead is there bodily. And there has to be death. Because you have to rend the veil of the flesh. And so he's going to have to die. And that's what stood between us and the Holy of Holies. That's kind of the picture that's being drawn. Um, that's one thing. It's corresponding with the temple. There's another thing about the tearing of this veil that it teaches us. And it shows that the old system, that sacrifice, is now done. It's taken care of. It's completed. When Jesus died, everything that, represent, that was represented by these Old Testament sacrifices are fulfilled. There's no more need for such kind of sacrifices. And also, the way to God is now made open. And we go to Him any time we want. Isn't that great? We draw close to Him. It was open for all. So God demonstrated this in a dramatic way. So people could see this. The veil is torn. And we think that's, that's quite incredible, and it is. This happened at 3 p.m., because that's when he died. When he dies, this tears. What's happening at 3, 3 o'clock, it's considered to be twilight hours between 3 and 5. They did the sacrificial animals. And at this time, who is at the temple? Well, the priests are there. And there's some that are inside that temple proper, of course, there's the most holy place beyond that. They weren't in there, but they were in that one place where they could see the veil. And all of a sudden, can you imagine the sound of that and the sight of that? And there's nobody up there ripping this. And this, this veil is very thick, very heavy. Nobody comes in there and starts cutting it with their hands. You just don't start doing it with a knife. It took God to do this. And so when the Passover sacrifice started, guess what's happening? Rip! priests are in there. The people are sacrificing their, their animals. So they're outside and the priests come out there and I'm sure they're saying you can't believe what's happening. They're talking to the other priests. You've got to come in here and look at this. Had to get the attention, don't you think? If you peeked in there and saw that. They're just doing their duties and there it is. Now, I believe that some of the ones, those priests, that witnessed this, later on, came to Christ. Because of this veil. If you were to look in Acts chapter 6, you'll see that there, there were many people coming to Christ in the very early days of, of the church. In Acts 6, 7, it says that the Word of God spread. Don't you like that? The Gospel is to go everywhere. Keep that in your mind. Don't hide it here in Jeff City. Don't hide it here in this church. It has to go everywhere. Make it spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And look at this. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. It means they became believers. It's not just many. It says great many. I don't know how many that is, but it must be mega. A megaton of priests that come to Christ. They were obedient to the faith. I think that's rather incredible. Let's look to see how the fulfillment applies to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 16. Now, it talks about a veil over Moses, okay? But we're dealing with veil, that's the idea. 
Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face. Why did he put a veil over his face? Because of the glory that was there that would actually blind the people that was so much. And it wasn't that Moses had glory, but he had been with God, and we know that that kind of reflected onto him. And it's still kind of there. And as he's there, they have they have to shield their eyes. So later he had to put a veil over the face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What's that mean to you guys? What's that mean to me? That means I have complete, total access into the throne room of God. And I can go in and plead for His grace, for His mercy, and know that He will give it to me. That is just an awesome thing. That veil has been taken away from our eyes. But still yet, the veil is on the people who are stuck in their religion. And they can't see that that was the old way. The glory is fresh and new. Now go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 through 28. You get these famous verses here that mean so much to us. Let's look at verse 24. Start there. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. We, we know he did that physically, but we're talking he did something more. Which are copies of the truth. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now here we go. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place. Every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, He has appeared, look at this, to put away sin. That's expiation. To put it away by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once, to bear the sins of many, his chosen. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Amen. Is that an amen? Does, we're, we're looking at promises here. These should excite us every time we think about it. This is God's word saying this. He put away sin. He died once. He doesn't have to continue it on. It is done. And what a mockery it is for a cult to come along and sacrifice Jesus every day, every moment. He's being sacrificed in one that is called a church. The Roman church continues to do that. It's a sacrifice of the Mass, and that is blasphemy. They say all the right terms. They say Jesus. They'll even say salvation. They can even use the word justification in a different way. They'll use belief. All the terms we use, and they use the Bible. But this word of God means nothing if it's compared to their tradition. And so therefore they continue to do that. What does it say here in Hebrews? And many other places, especially in Hebrews. He died once to put away sin. It's been done. It's finished. Their sacrifice of the Mass is incredible to them because that's where they get their sin taken away. That's where they get to be having uh, the, the, the person of Christ. They take in the bread, the person of Christ. Uh, I didn't even mean to go in that, but I, it just gets me every time I read that. And I know many of you probably have used that on some of your relatives. Um, that church is not even close to the real church. But it sounds so close, so right. But it's so far away. From what is truth. It, it, it blinds people, doesn't it? The veil is over their eyes. The trick is, is how can I get that veil torn? How can I get in there to show them that they can be in the presence of God and they don't have to wait for a priest to go before them? They have priests too, don't they? 
They're in the Old Covenant. They're practicing Judaism. The old age ended. A new age has begun. So anyway, the ceremonies, the, the priestly function, it remained until the temple was done, 70 A.D., but it really didn't mean anything anymore. That was it as far as God was concerned. It, you know, we know the temple was destroyed. But the significance was ended at the very time that Jesus died. And he's saying, now the access is here. The new covenant started. So two things we've, we've seen so far. We've seen a correspondence with the temple, uh, Christ's body. We've seen the, uh, the old system of the sacrifice is uh, done away with. It's finished, completed. The third thing it does is unite the Jew and the Gentile. It had been only for the Jews. The, the tabernacle was for the Jews. Now, there was a court of the Gentiles where God was showing that, yes, I can have my people. But they were considered to be outside until this time. Their court of the Gentiles didn't even come up to where the actual tabernacle was at or the temple later on. So, really significant time of what happened and it was open to the Gentiles. The new age now takes in both within the church. And if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 16, something that's very familiar to you, for He Himself is our peace who has made both one. He's talking about Jews, Gentiles. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. And I think of um, here, here's the veil. I have a picture of that. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, and that's right where we've been at in Matthew 27, right? He abolished that enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, the church, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. Who are those? Us. Unless you're Jewish. He's talking about those ones who were far out there. They couldn't come to all the way to the tabernacle. They couldn't go in that one way to bring their sacrifices. And to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Tearing of the veil meant a lot of things, didn't it? Another one it did, it, it, uh, and we kind of covered it, but it's opening a new, a living way to God. People couldn't go into His presence until Christ died. They had to have a priest to intercede, and now the way is open for everyone. Now, let's look in Hebrews again. It talks about that great access. What promises we have here. You having difficulties? Or you just want to praise God? Positives? Negatives? Here's what you do. Let us therefore come sheepishly to the throne of grace. What does it say? Boldly. To the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help Him help in time of need. There's an ongoing thing. It's not just talking about salvation here, but it's talking about in our everyday walk, we need His mercy and grace. Do you know He gives us enough grace for the day? Keeps giving us grace. Constantly giving us grace. In time of need, whenever we need that, He gives it to us. Even when we haven't gone in there, He still gives us grace, doesn't He? But we need to recognize that He's always giving us that just awesome grace. Well, one other one. Hebrews 10. 19 through 24. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, there's that word again. I think that Hebrew writer just was trying to find the word that would say, look what we can do. Go in there. To enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, set apart for us, through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, here's what we do. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The church even gets together and goes in the presence of God and encourages each other. That's why you have church, to glorify God, but also to serve, to encourage, to help each other. It's not just a one-way street, or else we could just sit home and have a good Sunday with the Lord. But you see the advantage, and it's more than an advantage, as we come together. We stimulate and stir up love and good works. So, you see all the things that it does. Uh, Nothing can obstruct our way into the holies. He threw open His holy presence to everybody who will come in His name. And when people find out that they can pray straight to God... And they don't have to go through Mary. They don't have to go through saints. They don't have to go through other avenues. You go straight to Jesus Christ. It is freedom. And almost every testimony I've ever heard from people who were entrapped into that, that's one of the first things they say. I can go straight to God. Straight to Jesus Christ. We, we take that for granted sometimes. But it is great to know, isn't it? To be reminded. Okay, now we go back to our Matthew and we go to verse 51. That's where we started and we're still there. We did a half a verse. I thought we were going further than this. Okay, let's see. The earth quaked. Okay, the veil tore. Yeah, that, that is a miracle. That is amazing. That was God. Well, the earthquake, okay, that's just accident. Earthquakes happen. We live here in Missouri, and we live on a fault and uh, you know, New Madrid, Missouri, and we know we've heard the stories about the earthquakes there and back in the 1800s, and we know that that could happen again, and the river flowed backwards and all those stories, which were true. Uh, and, and we know we've felt earthquakes a little bit around here. California has really felt those, and we know what happened in San Francisco a few years back, and Earthquake happens, and they can happen in in Israel. That's definitely a fault line there. But this is miraculous. This is different than a regular earthquake. It's not accident. It was right at the time of Christ's death. The veil tears, and then the earth starts quaking. And God is making another statement. He's making it loud and clear God brought a devastating earthquake upon this area, this land, to Jerusalem and the areas surrounding it there. Now, this probably was something kind of like what the giving of the law was. Kind of corresponds to that. You remember the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? And all the people were standing way back off that mountain because... God's presence was there as He was giving them uh, a little glimpse of His holiness. Um, What we need to do is first turn to Hebrews. Well, we've been in Hebrews a lot today, haven't we? Hebrews shows the fulfillment a lot of what Christ did. But this is kind of dealing with Moses and, and the giving of the law. And in verse 21, Hebrews 12, 21, it says, And so terrifying... Was the the sight that Moses look at it, Moses said, "I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, exceedingly afraid and trembling." He was shaking. The earth was shaking, but he was shaking because the presence of God was there. The holiness was there, and that's nothing to um, just take lightly here. This is something that's incredible that Moses experienced. Now go to verse 26. It says, Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with a reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He's never changed. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's a consuming fire. When you look at it that way, you say, yes, I owe Him reverence. I owe Him a godly fear. He's still that way. Go to Exodus 19.18, just before the giving of that law, which is in Exodus 20. Exodus 19.18. What's going on here at Mount Sinai? Let's look at verse Look at verse 17. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning, and there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. The Lord called him. He went. He didn't wait. He didn't sit around. Well, I need to pray about it. He knew there was no option. And he went. Wow. Called him up there. What would you do if you were one of those people? They were scared to death. And they should have been. This is a holy God. We don't play around with this holy God. Quite a thing. Well, look in 2 Samuel 22 8. 2 Samuel 22 8. Talking about some of the things that uh, God does. The, the law is a terrible thing for those who break it, and you don't have a covering for it. The earth trembled. In 2 Samuel 22, 8, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. This is talking about God's deliverance and it's brought forth by Samuel. And David is speaking to the Lord this song. This is what's happening as Samuel records this. Um, quaking, trembling, the earth shaking. Psalm 18.7. God did this several times and He will do it again. The most awesome time must have been at the time that He died on the cross. Psalm 18.7. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because He was angry. Again, David is writing a psalm here about the sovereignty of God and about the Savior. A thousand years before Christ, this is written. And David brings out praise. Isaiah. Here we have the Psalms. Here we have a prophet. We've looked at it in the law. How is the Old Testament summed up as? The law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Isaiah 29, 6. An awesome God. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. He's talking about judgment upon the city, the nations. Jeremiah 10, 10. He is a holy God. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. At His second coming, that's some of the things that will happen there. When God shook the earth that day at the cross, He showed a preview of what's going to come when He comes back the second time. 
to his second coming. He shakes the earth in judgment at the coming of the king. So, the shaking of the earth, one sense of it is the judgment of wickedness. In the Old Testament, that was dealing with God judging. Uh, even at Mount Sinai, the law. All it does is judge you. It doesn't save you. And it leaves you in a, in a terrible awe and dread of the Lord. But then we see it from the other side. And if you're Christian, you see it as the power of God displaying Himself at the cross. His glory is being seen at the cross. Christ dealt a fatal blow to the enemy Satan. He did him in right there. As prophesied in, uh, way back in Genesis 3, he crushed him, didn't he? Crushed his head. Now, Satan still remains. We know that Ephesians, it talks about we have uh, a battle with him. We have to put our armor on, which is the person of Christ. And, uh, you know, the devil roars, as Peter says. That was during the early church days. It still happens. We have an enemy. The devil is not done. But he, actually, he was defeated there. Christ will come back and take that title deed and claim the earth. Satan will be thrown in the lake of fire. Now, John 1.17 shows to us as believers, we don't have to fear that law anymore like the Israelites did there at the Mount of Sinai. John 1.17, it says this, no, uh, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Okay? That law, it's a fearful thing because nobody can satisfy God by doing it. But grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Grace and truth. Think on those two words for a moment. If it weren't for grace, where would we be? And how did we learn what that grace was about? Through His truth. Did you know that we are handling the very word of truth today right here? God is speaking. Just like He spoke from that mountain. Only it's not audible. But He's speaking in a visible way as we look at His word. As it goes to us spiritually. In, in that sense. So the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth through Christ. Now we've seen, what, two things. The veil torn. The shaking of the earth. Two amazing miracles. At, at this time, we've already seen some leading up to this. Let's see another one. Verse 51. Are we still there? It's the verse we started off with. And the rocks were split. Alright. The rocks were split. Well, you have an earthquake. And it's a pretty amazing thing when you see buildings going down, bridges going down. Well, here you have rocks. Rock is the hardest and firmest part of the earth. Rock. And the rocks felt this mighty shaking and trembling. And they started breaking. You can imagine the sound that's happening here. And, and, and God's fury is being poured out, has been poured out on the Lamb of God. The rocks are thrown down. And we see uh, in Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. And I did that because I didn't want to waste a half an hour trying to find the book of Nahum. <laughs> Have you been in that book lately? No? Shame on you. We probably should read Nahum there. The Lord is doing this. The splitting of the rocks. Now, let's go to the next verse. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I'm done. <laughs> Most people usually will avoid avoid this verse. They even in commentaries you won't see a lot on it. This is spooky. 
if you weren't coming from God's angle. Now, granted, there can be a lot of speculation on this too, and some people can say a lot more things on this they shouldn't be saying. Because we just don't know a lot what happened here. All we know for sure is that bodies, these saints came out of the grave and they met uh, their spirit. And these people are walking about on earth right there in Jerusalem. I mean, boy, has that ever happened before? This is an incredible thing. This is a miracle of all miracles. But we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus did that with uh, Lazarus, didn't he? Well, he's done it again. Uh, we don't have a lot of detail. No doubt it happens. But the Lord selectively raised these bodies of certain believers who, who had died back in the Old Testament covenant time period. And I know people are going to ask, well, who were they? And there are certain questions that we can't answer. I can't tell you. I can do is say they were believers. Well, which, which believers? Were they the ancient patriarchs? Were they Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Or how about somebody who had just died recently, a few days ago? Modern day saints? What happened after this? Well, said so they went into Jerusalem. Coming out of the graves, they went in there. And it was after the resurrection that they went in there. So, did they die again? And that could have happened. Maybe they had to die again. And that would be, that would be kind of tough. You saw your relative and, and you've been talking with them and, and now they die again. That's it. And it, that could have happened. I won't eliminate that. I am kind of tending to believe that they just might have ascended with the Lord never to die again. Uh, there were uh, people who had uh, had that happen before. If you remember Enoch back in Genesis. Uh, Elijah was taken up. And of course, they didn't even die. These people had died. And came, I, it's hard to imagine dying again. You, you, you die once and then comes the judgment. So, we don't really have any proof, but I'll, I'll tell you what John MacArthur says, and I think it's a pretty good quote here. When Jesus died, their spirits came from the abode of righteous spirits. They were joined with the glorified bodies that came out of the graves. This was full and final resurrection and glorification, making this miracle another foretaste of God's sovereign work during the end times when all the dead in Christ shall rise. They didn't appear in Jerusalem until after the Lord's resurrection because He was divinely appointed to be the first fruits of those who sleep. They probably appeared to only believers as did the resurrected Lord. And so that's probably. Could be a little conjecture, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Kind of interesting. What are some lessons we can learn out of this? Like I say, we could just skip it and move on. And go, I don't know about that. But, but it happened. I don't have any problem with it. Well, I tell you what, I think in this postmodern age, people would really be making fun of this. Oh, yeah, all right. Dead people came up out of their graves. This all sounds ridiculous to them. And okay, the earthquake, they can write that off. The, the veil, they could probably write that off. Somebody did it, right? The, the whole darkness thing, uh, they'll say it was uh, the moon and the sun and the way they were lined. Well, that couldn't be. We've already proven that scientifically. Passover time. What are, what are some lessons as we as believers can learn? Well, one thing is that this is a picture of the Old Testament saints and they will be raised. The ones who are believers, they believe just like we believe. They were just looking to the cross. We look back at it. They're going to be resurrected. And, and uh, that was promised in the Old Testament. All the ones who trusted them. I think the second thing that we can uh, see out of this is that the body of the saints will be resurrected. That proves that. That's a picture of that. Uh, we think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. We have this promise. He could have left us hanging and not ever told us that we'll resurrect. He says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So the ones who have already died... They will be brought up first, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Paul was thinking that maybe he could be alive. And then he says, then we who are alive. And not, I don't think he's just talking about spiritual life, because we're talking about a resurrection of a body here, 
out of the graves. And so he was thinking that Christ could come back even during his time. That we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Uh, the word there, being caught up uh, in the uh, Greek is harpazo. And in the Latin, it is rapio. And that's how you get that word rapture. There's nothing wrong with that. It's really out of the Latin, though. But uh, we hear that the word rapture today. But that's, that's really what it is. Yeah, I believe in the rapture. I believe that my, I'm going to meet with my spirit. My body's going to meet my spirit in the air and meet in the Lord. And as uh, simple as that. Yeah, the rapture is here. Um, we look forward to that when we are changed into new bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. That's, a, that's an important thing. We're joyful over that fact. We have to get new bodies. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54, and um, John 14, 19, or other passages. I'll move on. Now, we've seen four miracles at his death. This week, that was looked at. Here's the fifth one. It's verse 54, Matthew 27, 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and remember, we were saying this earthquake is a miraculous thing. When they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, some of the things that we've been talking about, they feared greatly, saying truly, this was the Son of God. Now, who's the centurion? Centurion is not Jewish. This is a Roman. This is a Gentile. This is a soldier. Him and the soldiers around, in some of the other accounts, it shows that it's not, the, not only the centurion saying this, but it is the soldiers that were around the cross that attended this crucifixion. So what we have here is something that is the greatest miracle of all so far. He's the leader of the ones who crucified Jesus. He had his hands bloody in the sense that he was there. He was leading this group of Roman soldiers to crucify Christ. They make a confession. And this is the grace of God. He takes these people who are murderers of Christ, and they're just doing their job, though, and like that, over the uh, little small amount of time that this has happened, over hours, I guess you could say, maybe even starting back early in the uh, morning hours, and now here it is, uh, mid-afternoon, they're terror-stricken. This earthquake, all these other things that have been going on. And God just quickens them to spiritual life. It doesn't say they became believers here, but I think there's enough evidence to say, I believe this happened. Because they feared greatly, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. We don't get a full confession here, but I think they're recognizing that he is no mere man. And I think that they recognize that they're standing in the presence of a holy God. And they're not holy. We see Gentiles who are softened. Their hearts are just done in. That's what God does. That's how he converts us. He softens our heart. And then we are then believers. And he's the one that does it. The Jews were hardened at this time for the most part. Now remember, there's going to be a lot of priests and a lot of other people coming to the Lord after this. And there's just multitudes, thousands are coming to Christ during the early church. But you have Gentiles. By the way, wherever they went, I'm sure that they told this story. They truly were believers. They gave out the gospel as Roman soldiers. And they might have been stationed in Jerusalem for a while and they might have been shipped out somewhere else. 
Who knows? But maybe they had something to do whenever they went back to Rome. Maybe they were part of the church there at, uh, at a later date. We don't know. But I think it's remarkable to, to kind of think of what could have happened. Uh, God worked a work of salvation here all by His grace. And these guys had probably been with Him the most of, of anybody because they were probably there at the arrest. And during the time that they're bringing Him to court and back and forth, and then in the room when they, they beat Him and they do the 39 stripes, they spit on Him, they made fun of Him, they scourged Him. Some of these guys right here that became believers, that's what they did to Him. And that represents sinful mankind. At his worst, right? So we see who these guys are. What is the means of God convicting them? Terror. They were terror struck. It was put upon them. They were very fearful. They feared greatly. And guilt puts fear into men, to mankind. And that's what God wants. And that's where He can start working a work. They see that. The next thing is their expression. We've already kind of touched that on. The word is frightened or feared, feared greatly. The word there is related to an English word. The Greek word is phobia. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Phobeo is, I could have pronounced that, but it, it means total terror. We're talking greatly fearing here, as it says there. It puts them into a panic. A total panic. I don't know what to do. This is just incredible. The darkness. The earthquake. There was something more here. This is a divine power here. It's not just dark and the earthquake and the rocks are splitting. They were now aware of this is a supernatural thing happening. They had heard of Probably the Jewish leaders saying, well, he claimed to be the Son of God. Isn't that the reason that they were arresting him? And they, I'm sure, probably knew about that. The Son of God. Look in Matthew 14, 26. Jesus happens to be walking on the sea here. The disciples are with him. Look at this. Verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a coast. And they cried out for fear. That's that same word, phobia. A great fear. I mean, they were in sheer panic when they saw this. Wouldn't you? This is a holy God. Matthew 17, 6. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. Verse 5, God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Same thought here. They were before the Holy God. He's revealing to them a little glimpse of His glory. That's the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Whoa. Isaiah 6, same thing. The holiness of God. The angels in there. And Isaiah sees that the holiness of God is in that temple. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, 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 I am with people of unclean lips. They speak it. They live it. Can we identify with that? In this nation that we live in? Look at the world. Don't let the world form you into what its mold is. Think of what the truth is. Think about this holy God. Luke chapter 5. I'm not going to turn there, but there you have Peter. Peter winds up not being able to get any fish for the night. Recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, get away from me. I am sinful. Just depart. Don't look at me. Just get out. I am so sinful, Lord. He recognizes the holiness of God. When that light shines on, that's what happens. Well, the confession is this. Truly, this was the Son of God. How did they express it? 
in their expressions that they had, and then in their confession. Luke 23, 47, a parallel to this passage in Matthew. So when the centurion saw what had happened, look at this. He glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. He's saying this. The other men, the soldiers around, they're saying this. Certainly. And what really captures my attention, he glorified God. That is what it's about. When he recognized that this is not somebody to be messing with, no longer are we going to make fun of this man. This is the Son of God right here. And he glorified God right there. Praised Him. And truly or certainly suggest certainty of salvation. That's why I say this man, probably the soldiers around, became believers. Remember the thief on the cross? Same thing happened there. People are coming to Christ at the worst time of mankind. This, this glory of God is incredible, isn't it? He surpasses all sin. Totally defeated it. Death was defeated. The Jews who saw Him on the cross, most of them looked on Him and they said, if you're the Son of God, come down from there. Remember those? those? Most of those same people. Because He did not come down from the cross, and they didn't think He could anyway. They don't believe in Him. But do they believe all these things that's happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, matter of fact, beat their breasts. I'm not sure. I think it is um, might be in Luke. Yeah, 23. We read verse 47. Uh, there is the picture of the Gentiles becoming believers, being converted. Verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. They left. This earthquake happened. They split. The rocks are splitting. They're splitting. They're getting out of there. You, you can imagine. They're running, beating their breast. They know something supernatural has just happened. They can't deny that. But it represents people who say, yeah, I, I believe in God, but I'm going to live my own life anyway. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I don't care. That's most of the world, isn't it? They don't care. They've been given every sign that they need. The Word of God has been preached to most people in the world. The Gospel has been preached and it continues to be preached and we continue to bring it forth, right? But what a contrast you have here between the Jewish people who knew what the truth was about, what the Messiah was about, and you have these Gentiles who hadn't really had any previous knowledge. They were pagans. They were total unbelievers. And God, in a moment's time, proved who he was and they trusted in him. These guys make a confession. The other ones are scared to death, beating their breast, running, returning home. But they didn't trust him. You know what? When they made a confession, they did the, the best of what his disciples could not have said any better. Really, this is the Son of God. If you remember that um, Jesus earlier had said when they were putting Him on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Might have been some of these guys right here. Thief on the cross. Maybe some others. God's great grace is happening here while the wrath of God is being poured. At the same time, you're seeing these two elements. No sign of repentance from the Jews here. Doesn't, doesn't show any confession. 
no, they have remorse, they have agony, but anguish because of what's happened. They're scared to death too. But no repentance. They knew that there was judgment happening and they were underneath it, but they didn't seek His mercy. Do you know people like that? Because they're living for themselves. They don't take God seriously. Now look at later responses in Acts chapter 2. Early church, Peter preaching the message. Many of these same people that who maybe even ran at that time, though, might have done this. Many of those same people that were at the cross. Starting in verse 36. Acts 2.36 Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, He's made Him both Lord and Christ. The one you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they're scared to death. They've seen the holiness of God preached. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the response that we want. Peter said to them, look at this, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, Jew and Gentile, as many as the Lord our God will call. Did you catch that last phrase? Have you ever used this verse as a, uh, an election one? I just noticed it recently back a few months ago. As many as the Lord our God will call. The ones who are His, He will call them. He says, repent. Let you be baptized. Remission of sins. So the repentance. There's a responsibility factor that people have. And they're, to, they're being summoned to the call. Humanly, they are supposed to respond. All are that way. So we see two responses. We wrap this up here. When it, the bottom line is this. People trust Christ. Many don't. We've seen the wrath of God in this section. We've seen the holiness of God. You can call Him Lord and confess Him as that and truly mean it. There will be repentance. There will be faith. Those are granted. Many people don't want to put themselves into His hands because they'd rather live their own life. How sad it is. We were all there. That was every one of us. Why are we sitting here this morning? God drew us. Drew us right into the kingdom. People might know all of these claims. They can even believe the miracles happen. But He never becomes personal to them. He's never... He's just intellectually believing. And many people sit in our churches today filling the pews Believing intellectually that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again the third day. You say, that's the element, isn't it? To believe means to go beyond just believing what He did historically. It means to take it into the heart. And repentance comes. So this is what we see here. We see the two responses. He, would, he can draw even the ones who are the least likely. Would you have said that Roman, Gentile, soldiers, enemies of the Jews, and Jesus at that time, would you say they could be saved? They were the people most likely not to be saved. And they're the ones who are brought into the kingdom. The ones who know who He is, have the facts in the mind, but they walk away. There's the two responses. We know about that, but there it is. It's tied up in, in all these miracles that we've seen today. And that was incredible things that happened at the cross, wasn't it? It's much more than we can even imagine. We plead to people, follow Jesus. Follow Him. Trust Him. Repent. Believe. That's our message. As we've seen the heart of it here at the cross. Let's pray. Father, Lord, You are simply a great, awesome God. You go far beyond what our thoughts are about. And even these miracles we can't even explain humanly. We just believe them, take them at face value. 
how can we ultimately even totally believe in a, in a human mind what the incarnation is? But yet you've shown us that. This whole idea of the crucifixion, this atonement, dying for our sins, it doesn't make sense to the human mind. But thank you for revealing that to us. And Lord, thank you for giving this message of reconciliation so that we would be on a mission ourselves telling about what happened there at the cross for we are witnesses of what happened to our lives. Thank you. And as we continue to die to ourselves daily today, Lord, may it bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And...